Haven't we been here before? Is it just me who's having some deja vu? There's a fire. There are lots of questions aimed at Peter. He seems to be getting defensive as the line of conversation continues. This just happened, didn't it? Yes. There are significant similarities with the scene outside the courts the night that Jesus is crucified, before Jesus is crucified. And it's a generally accepted interpretation that these parallel narratives have a relationship to one another. And that's what I'm curious about this morning. What does it mean to link these two events? What do we learn about how God works? What do we learn about God's character through this scene on the beach in the early morning? If perchance you weren't at the Good Friday service a few weeks back, like I was not, here's the story that we're working with. In chapter 18 of John, as night wears on, Peter stands with servants and officers gathered outside by, you guessed it, a charcoal fire. He is asked three times, once each by one of three different persons, you're one of that man's disciples, aren't you? Each of the three times, Peter quickly and easily says, oh no, that was not me. Now Jesus had told him that this would happen, that Peter would deny Jesus, and that it would happen before dawn came, before the rooster crowed. Understandably, when he heard this, Peter rankled at this prophecy when Jesus gave it at the Last Supper table, just a few hours before the events themselves unfolded. So at its most obvious level, this second charcoal fire and second set of three questions serves as a reversal of what took place on the darkest night in history. And of course, it's not lost on the careful reader that the first fire and conversation happens in the dark of night, while the second takes place as dawn breaks and the light has begun to come back into the world. But what meaning can we, 2,000 years on, take from this? At the end of this chapter of John, which is the conclusion of his entire witness of Jesus' life and works, John writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So why are these two stories important, necessary to have been included? Why did these companion pieces make the cut when hundreds of others didn't rise to the level of our gospel writer's boundary? There's much to be said about the symbolism of the threefold renunciation that Peter had, and then the threefold affirmation, three being that all-significant number of completion and fullness in Judeo-Christian religion. 
There's plenty to be curious about when it comes to the charcoal fire used as central to the scenery of both of these stories, the way that fire reveals, purifies, that fire transforms the things that it comes in contact with, whether it be the roof of a great cathedral or the carcass of a freshly caught fish. There's lots to explore in the witnesses and companions named in each of these stories, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the presence of other fishermen disciples, and the way that Peter reacts to the revelations given in both situations, his feelings of shame, his rankling at the prophecies that are given, his eagerness to be with the Lord, his typical awkwardness of enthusiasm. I'm curious, though, to shift the focus out a bit from this particular post-resurrection story to the others that our gospel writer chooses to include. His words about all the stories that could have been recorded, could have been included, and his words in verse 14 that this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Those two things make me wonder about what Jesus is trying to show us about who God is through the stories that are preserved and through the way that Jesus revealed himself to his beloved companions after his resurrection. When Peter denied Jesus three times in the dead of night, we imagine he was as ashamed as he'd ever been in his life, full of despair, perhaps, at the lack of courage that he had shown, at the betrayal of his best friend and Lord. I remember when I first saw a film version of this scene, probably the Jesus film from the 1990s. And though I knew the story and I knew how it ended, when the actor heard the rooster crow and the camera panned to his face and then to him running down a city street, I thought for sure that he was going to kill himself, that he would literally die of shame. And indeed, isn't that exactly what his companion Judas did? They faced the same question, one perhaps that some of us have faced in moments of our own lives. Where can we possibly go from here? What hope can conceivably come from this place of despair? Peter and Jesus' relationship suffered a fatal blow that night. Peter must have imagined that he'd never see Jesus again, that he'd carry that guilt to his grave. The rupture of their companionship was surely thought to be complete. Peter wasn't there when Jesus was crucified. He didn't stick around. Peter left the warmth of the fire, alone, hungry, cold. What about the other stories from that night and the day that followed? There's the story of the women, those quiet characters whose presence is immortalized in hundreds of paintings and depictions 
of Jesus's crucifixion, of his being lowered to the cross into the arms of his mother, of his body being taken to the tomb. The women stay. The women watch. The women are there. That's how their story resolves as the stone is rolled into place, as they imagine that they've carried their Lord to his final rest. They've borne more than one body to the grave in their lifetime. They've companioned and midwifed more than one beloved leader and companion to his death. They know how to care for bodies, young and old, live and dead, healthy and unwell. And Jesus' own flesh is just added to the number, just the latest in their rhythm of cleaning, nourishing, journeying, witnessing to the bodies and lives of people for whom they care, people whom they lead, people whom they follow. So what happens early on the first day of the week while it is still dark, as John says? The women do what they've always done. They go to the tomb to pack the body with spices and preserving salt, just as they've done before for beloved companions, just as they know they will do again. It's all the same. It never changes, never deviates. Death comes and they tend the body. They walk through their grief and their mourning. But behold, brothers and sisters, isn't it different this time? Praise the Lord, Hosanna. Death does not greet the women at the tomb. Life greets the women at the tomb. After the resurrection, after the defeat of death once and for all, the women's story is changed. And they're not just silent observers or faithful witnesses. They are the first evangelists. Their faith is rewarded with the first fruits of new and unending life. The quiet, humble, obscured rhythms of these women's lives in all their ordinariness is catapulted into the blinding light of salvation. <coughs> Excuse me. Their faithfulness in the dark, their work as unsung heroes for centuries is exposed and lifted up as the very first ones to hear and to know and to see the new world that is dawning for the first time Easter morning. Jesus honors their quiet faithfulness with the greatest revelation that has ever been made. So if this is what God shows us of those whose work is unsung, ordinary, silent, common, what does God in Jesus show us of himself in the revelation and reconciliation of Peter and that fire on the beach at dawn 
and the threefold affirmation. And even the disturbing prophecy of what awaits Jesus' most eager disciple. Peter was not too proud to race to Jesus' feet. Peter longed for communion and companionship and forgiveness and redemption. And his longing on the other side of the grave and death. God in Jesus Christ gave him exactly the thing he had been longing for. The thing that Peter must have been asking for in his heart every moment since that great betrayal. Had been seeking in his every thought and action in the days following the trial and crucifixion had been knocking at the door of God's heart to receive that redemption. And so as disciples ourselves, we are promised in the actions of Jesus written here that we too will receive whatever restoration for which we long that we will enjoy whatever forgiveness for which we strain, that we will gain whatever redemption it is that we seek, whether it is this side of heaven or the other. God in Jesus reveals to us in this season of Easter, in these post-resurrection stories that the distance, the veil, the division between death and eternal life is short and inconsequential compared to the power and the love and the life and the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. I urge you to bask in this truth, brothers and sisters. May we rest in and know God's redeeming love in our lives today and always. Bring this good news to your weary traveling companions and know that God sees all, redeems all, forgives all. Amen.